The FDA's new regulations for implementing the 2010 Biologics Price Competition and Innovation Act will aim to provide an expedited approval framework for follow-on biologics. These new regulations will begin to answer many questions left open by the BPCIA, and their implementation will determine the extent to which competing companies will decide to pursue follow-on biologics. Finnegan partner Bill Lewis joins us now to discuss some of the key differences between the BPCIA and the prior regulations on traditional generic drugs. First of all, Bill, thanks for joining us. Could you begin with a brief overview and describe the differences between biologics and traditional pharmaceuticals? Sure, John. Generics for traditional pharmaceuticals are governed by the Hatch-Waxman Act, and that goes back to 1984. Prior to that act, with uh, some notable exceptions, if a generic company wanted to market a drug that had previously been approved, it would have had to conduct its own clinical trials. Well, I never did that because it's too expensive, time-consuming, so you really didn't have many generics. But all that changed with Hatch-Waxman. Basically, under Hatch-Waxman, really simplify this, what a generic does is it does this thing called a bioequivalency study. And that is basically not a detailed clinical trial with patients. They take usually about 20 volunteers. They're not patients. They're healthy volunteers. And they break them up into two groups. One group gets the branded drug. The other group gets the generic. And then they measure blood values. And ultimately, if it turns out that the drug gets to the blood at the same rate and the same degree, they're found to be bioequivalent. And that was a very easy test, and that really expanded the prevalence of generics. But Hatch-Waxman only applied to small molecules, stuff that we typically see when we go to the pharmacist. These are chemicals made by chemical synthesis and what are usually referred to as small molecules. They didn't relate to biologics. Hatch-Waxman doesn't apply to biologics. Biologics are much more complicated. So, Bill, can you describe exactly what biologics are? These things are typically very large, complex molecules produced by, for example, living cells. They would, one example would be proteins that are made by culturing cells that have been genetically modified. Well, prior to the Biologics Competition Act, which was approved March of last year, there wasn't any abbreviated pathway for these biologics. Well, that changed with the Biologics Act, and that act is significantly different from Hatch-Waxman. Bill, can you explain the key features of the 2010 Biologics Price Competition and Innovation Act and how this act differs from past laws like the Hatch-Waxman Act? Well, there are three general areas covered by this act, and all of them differ from Hatch-Waxman. The key areas are the requirements, how do you go about getting approval, exclusivity periods, and by that I mean how much periods does the originator drug get free of competition from a generic, separate and apart from patents. And the last area of uh, key differences is the entire framework for how do you go about dealing with patents that cover these originator drugs. Now, in connection with Hatch-Waxman, requirements, traditional pharmaceuticals, well, I just mentioned that a few minutes ago, it's basically bioequivalency studies, which is straightforward. Totally different for the Biologics Act. Now, in the Biologics Act, we refer to this generic version as the follow-on biologic, the FOB. Speaking of follow-on biologics, can you describe the requirements for a biologic to be considered an FOB? Well, for a follow-on biologic, the requirements at the FDA is it has to be biosimilar. 
And basically that means the structure has to be highly similar to the drug that it's trying to copy, what's called the reference product. And they're going to have to show that there are no clinically meaningful differences between the reference product and the follow-on biologic. Bill, what type of follow-on biologics does the Act contemplate? There's two types of follow-on biologics that this Act contemplates. One is the biosimilar one that I mentioned, and another is what's called an interchangeable follow-on biologic. They're significantly different in the context of a biosimilar if it gets approved, and let's say you go to the drugstore to get your prescription filled. Well, if that prescription is written for the branded product, you're not going to get a substitute for the biosimilar. Unlike, for example, in the traditional pharmaceuticals, you take your script for a branded drug to the pharmacist, the pharmacist can substitute a generic version without any doctor's intervention. Not so with a biosimilar. But that is so with this thing called an interchangeable follow-on biologic. And the requirements for getting that, it has to be not only biosimilar, but you're going to have to show, or the follow-on biologic applicant is going to have to show that it will produce the same clinical result. And if it's a drug that's given more than once, they're also going to have to show that there's no increased risk from switching from the branded version to the follow-on biologic. Bill, another difference you mentioned is this exclusivity period. How does this exclusivity period differ between traditional drugs and biosimilars? Traditional drugs under Hatch-Waxman, you file a new drug application, you get approved for a new chemical entity, what's called a new pharmaceutical, you get five years of exclusivity separate and apart from patents. Now, if you get a new treatment method, what's called a new indication, like for treating depression, for example, versus treating some other disease, you get an additional three years. Or if you have a new dosage form, for example, like an extended release versus an immediate release, another three years. Now, under this Biologics Act, again, totally different. If you are the first to get a biologic on a new structure, you get 12 years of exclusivity, very different from the Hatch-Waxman Act. Now, this is 12 years separate and apart from any patent protection. Now, if you come up with a new treatment for it, you get no additional time, no additional exclusivity, new dosage form, no additional exclusivity. Those are differences from Hatch-Waxman. However, if you make a change in the structure, and that change somehow produces a difference in safety, for example, or purity or potency, it's possible to get another 12 years of exclusivity. So these are really key differences from the Hatch-Waxman Act. There's also some differences in connection with what kind of exclusivity can a generic get, for example. Under Hatch-Waxman, if you're the first filed generic with a challenge to the patent, you can get potentially six months of exclusivity against other generics. Now, in the context of the Biologics Act, if you are a biosimilar, you can't get any exclusivity versus other biosimilars. But if you're the first interchangeable and get approval, you can get what's typically up to one year of exclusivity versus other interchangeable follow-on biologics. Now, the patent litigation framework, the last of the differences I mentioned, is also significantly different. There's differences with respect to what do you have to do to get into court to begin with, uh, how do you go about selecting the patents that are going to be involved in the lawsuit, 
and is there possibilities for multi-stage litigations. Can you elaborate on the patent litigation differences that have been mentioned and particularly on what steps have to occur before litigation can begin? In Hatch-Waxman, it's pretty straightforward. Pre-litigation activities, well, the branded company, when it files its application with the FDA to get approval for a, a new drug application, it has to list in that application the patents it thinks covers the drug or methods of using it. And if the NDA is approved by the FDA, that list of patents gets published in this thing called the Orange Book. And if a generic wants to file an abbreviated, what's called an abbreviated drug application against this branded drug, and it wants to know what patents are involved, it looks at the Orange Book, it sees these patents. If it wants to launch its product before the expiration of its patents, then it has to challenge. And it challenges by sending a letter to the patent owner, this thing called a paragraph four notice, which basically sets forth why the generic thinks the patent is invalid or not infringed or whatever, and it offers its application to the, uh, under a confidentiality agreement to the branded company. At that point, the branded company has 45 days to file suit. If it files suit within 45 days, it gets what's called a 30-month stay against FDA approval. The FDA can't approve the generic for 30 months, and during that 30 months, you have litigation. Now, in the Biologics Act, significantly different. Significantly more interaction is going to have to take place between the biologic branded version and the follow-on biologic. And one of the key differences, there is no orange book listing. Someone seeking to file a follow-on biologic is going to have to investigate itself to determine what patents are out there that may relate to the originator biologic product. And even though there's 12 years, as I mentioned earlier, of this exclusivity period, this follow-on biologic could file its application with the FDA after four years. Can't get approval for 12 years, but it could file after four years. Now, once it files, it has to then send its application to the branded biologic company. It has to do that in a fairly short period of time, like 20 days. At that point, the branded company then has to then has 60 days to send a letter to the follow-on biologic saying, these are the patents we think relate to our product. And they could be patents on anything. It could be the product. It could be a method of manufacture. It could be modality of treatment, any type of patent. The follow-on biologic then has to send basically a brief within 60 days explaining why it thinks none of those patents are infringed or why they think the patents are invalid, or they simply say, okay, we're not going to come on the market until one or more of those patents expire. Then this exchange continues, basically, this extensive exchange. At that point, the branded company basically has to send them a rebuttal brief explaining why they think there's infringement and why they think the arguments on invalidity basically are no good. And so there's this extended back and forth before there's any litigation. Bill, how does one go about selecting the patents involved in the litigation? The parties have to kind of negotiate to determine what patents are going to be involved in the litigation, which is yet to occur. If they can't reach agreement, then they basically have to have another exchange. To simplify it, the, the follow-on biologic basically says, I think X number of patents ought to be involved. It could be zero, one, two, without identifying them. 
Once they do that, then the parties simultaneously exchange letters, which then identify the specific patents they think should be involved. Now, the catch here is that the branded company can't list more patents than the follow-on biologic said should be involved in the lawsuit. And if the follow-on biologic says, I don't think anything ought to be involved, then the most the branded company could list is one patent. At that point, then the branded company has 30 days to file suit on all of the patents that are listed in these two exchange lists. Another difference between the traditional Hatch-Waxman and the Biologics Act is that if, for example, this follow-on biologic availed itself of the possibility of actually limiting the number of patents that are involved in this first stage, well, they're not off the hook because the act says that if the follow-on biologic gets approval, they can't market the product before giving a 180-day notice to the branded company. At that point, the branded company then can initiate a second round of litigation, either seeking to get an injunction or filing a separate declaratory judgment action on the remainder of these patents, which were excluded from the first phase because the follow-on biologic limited the number of patents involved. So, Bill, as we tie things together, what are the key differences between the Hatch-Waxman Act and the Biologics Act? Summarizing these key differences between the Biologics and Hatch-Waxman, Hatch-Waxman quick in terms of pre-suit, 45 days, that suit's going to start once the generic identifies its paragraph four notice. Biologics Act could take up to eight months after the follow-on biologic actually files its application with the FDA before you get into the courthouse with litigation. In terms of Hatch-Waxman, the branded company pretty much identifies the patents that are going to be involved in this lawsuit by that orange book listing I mentioned. In the Biologics Act, you go through this elaborate exchange of lists and the follow-on biologic can actually limit the number of patents involved, at least in the first phase of the litigation. Our guest has been Bill Lewis, a partner at Finnegan, one of the largest IP law firms in the world. To stay current on biotechnology, chemical, and pharmaceutical patent cases, to listen to other podcasts, and to receive additional information on the firm, please visit www.finnegan.com. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Finnegan.